Good morning. Greg AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. I am reporting live from the center of Jerusalem, Israel, about 200 meters or 200 yards from the Israeli Foreign Ministry, another 500 yards from the Knesset, and right in the center of what I believe is the Middle East's only and most advanced democratic state, and especially during this harrowing time of the last week with an escalating Iran causing conflict and kinetic action in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, just a week ago, as we had covered in last week's show on Wednesday, we had seen the launch of over 600 rockets from an Iranian-sponsored terror organization, the Islamic Jihad and Hamas, all targeted at this little nest, no bigger than the state of New Jersey. And I have had quite the week to be able to share with you stories, to bring some guests on who are living in the region, and also to give you the latest from the Middle East. To begin this morning's broadcast, I'd like to take you to the port of Fajala, which is right off the coast of the Strait of Hormuz, a small isthmus between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman, where we find ourselves having seen the sabotage of four oil tankers off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. All hands and all fingers are pointing to the Iranian government as the body responsible for using asymmetric warfare and deniable bombings to try to threaten over 30% of the world's global oil supply. Not only 48 hours later, there was a report against another, a report of an attack against another oil installation in another country, in Saudi Arabia. As we have reports coming from the Saudi news agency and also from Reuters, that armed drones struck two oil pumping stations in the kingdom on Tuesday, two days after Saudi oil tankers, as we mentioned beforehand, were sabotaged off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. The Houthi, and if we get just into a quick background on the Houthi rebels, they are the deviant Shia Iranian-sponsored force fighting against the Sunni Arab majority forces in Yemen and the Yemeni civil war, which has become a hot button issue in Washington, D.C., especially the U.S.'s support for the Emirati and Saudi-backed forces there against the Iranian-backed rebels. It's probably the hottest Iran-American proxy fight going on right now. But as Houthi-run Masira TV reported, the group had carried out the drone attacks on what they considered to be vital Saudi installations in response to what they called, quote, continued aggression and blockade on Yemen. The results of this have not shattered prices in the skyrocketing oil market, but it does begin to wander that if the questions that we had spoken about on last week's show, what exactly will Iran's response be to the declaration of its Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Al-Quds Division, which is responsible for Iranian extra-military, extra-paramilitary operations overseas outside of Iranian borders, what will be their response to the American labeling of one of their main military forces as a terror organization, the American imposition of additional sanctions against Iran's oil sector, and now increasingly against their mining and metal export sector? And I think we have an answer. The story goes back about 10 days. 
allegedly, according to news reports, foreign news reports, we had a Israeli delegation arrive in Washington, D.C., which is common. There's a lot of intelligence and security and defense cooperation between the U.S. government and the Israeli government, where the Israeli military delegation gave a stark warning to the U.S. The following was the content of that warning. Iran or one of its proxy organizations, that could be Hezbollah, it could be Shia militias in Iraq, it could be the Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or even the Houthi forces, was planning an attack against either the United States itself or a U.S. ally in the region. And only a few days after that warning was delivered, you have 600 rockets being launched by Palestinian terror organization in Gaza on Israel. You have sabotage of Emirati-docked, Saudi-owned oil tankers threatening the ability for Gulf Arab states to export oil to their clients in the rest of the world. And you now have a drone attack, which was claimed by the Houthi rebel organization, the Houthi terror organization in Western Yemen, trying to disrupt Saudi oil manufacture, production, supply, and its logistics chain. All of these different pieces of information lead me to believe the following three things. First, one must pay attention to an announcement that the State Department made today about what they call non-essential U.S. government personnel in Iraq and the demand that they leave Iraq immediately. I don't think that the information that the Israeli government conveyed to the White House two weeks ago was limited to just a general warning. We already spoke ad nauseum last week about the U.S. deployment of the U.S.'s Abraham Lincoln and a carrier battle group to the Persian Gulf. We spoke about the deployment of a U.S. bomber wing, that's B-1, B-2, and B-52 strategic bombers that are now within striking distance of Iran in case the Iranians decide to act directly against American interests there. And we also have the warning that non-military personnel, non-security personnel must now leave Iraq. There's two ways this could go. There may be a slow, deliberate increase in not just saber-rattling, but the deployment of Iranian proxy forces to attack the U.S. in the region. We have not yet seen what the American response to this will be. President Trump gave a general answer to what reporters were asking him on the White House lawn would be the American response or the American rationale for this deployment of force. And if it's anything to consider, the Iranians have fired first. The deployment of your strategic weaponry or your strategic forces, especially that of an aircraft carrier, an amphibious battle group, which holds between, depending on the allotment of the force, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000 Marines, the plans which may be announced in case of an escalation in the conflict of 120,000 American troops to surround Iran, not to necessarily invade it. If we look at the figures from 2003 during the Iraq War, it took 150,000 soldiers to invade Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Iran is a country that's almost twice as big and has four times the population. So even this announcement being made by the United States does not indicate that there's an invasion coming. It means that they're trying to contain Iran. But going back to the first point, non-essential U.S. military and State Department government personnel are being ordered to leave Iraq. The second point is the Iranians have fired first. The third point is 
the binary option between playing a game of chicken, which ends up in people potentially losing their lives, our allies being attacked, the global oil supply being disrupted, or perhaps the Iranians blink first. One has to think about the consequences of the actions of both sides. The argument that I would make is, is that this is a situation that is better to happen now when America has a ability to deploy its first forces surrounding Iran. That means that we have Afghanistan, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf countries. American forces are surrounding Iran on all sides. Now, the opposite side of that is that's a lot of targets for the Iranians to go after. They know their backyard. They know the proxy forces that they have available to strike out in those countries where the Americans are, are, are stationed. But if we're looking at this being a situation that's an escalation now, I would much rather have this dance with the devil, with the Iranian devil, happen today over the issue of nuclear weapons, over the issue of sponsorship of terrorism, over the issue of having a monopolistic hegemony over their neighbors, rather than having it 10 years from now, or if we go back to the uh, timeline of the Iranian nuclear agreement, six years from now, when they would be allowed the almost unlimited development and enrichment of uranium sources, it's better to get it over with before Iran becomes a threshold nuclear power than to delay the inevitable of six years from now when they would not just have the forces that are available to them at this point, but under a different administration with less cunning, less confidence, and less courage with a weaker national security team that may capitulate to a nuclear threshold Iran with a much, much, much more dangerous government on that side. The way this plays out, I'm not sure anyone necessarily has the information on being able to prognosticate or predict which way it goes, but if Iran does not back down, the U.S. will eventually respond with overwhelming force. I don't think we're looking at an invasion, but we are looking at the potential toppling of the Iranian economy and the internal dissent that comes with it, just like what happened to the Shah in 79 could happen to the Ayatollahs today. After these messages, Danny Seaman from the Israel Victory Project. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance, in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all.
The few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. This is Greg Roman reporting live from Jerusalem, Israel. Before we get to our next guest, the director of the Israel Victory Project here in our Jerusalem offices for the Middle East Forum in the Shkona, in the neighborhood of Talbiot, I'd like to frame a little bit of what's happening right now with Israeli democracy and the process that is taking place for putting together an Israeli government now that we're about five weeks after the Israeli elections, which saw the nomination of Benjamin Netanyahu after having won a majority of his block of seats. We're looking at the potential government for Netanyahu constituting 65 seats and the opposition looking at 55 seats, depending on who chooses to join his coalition. And to give our audience a little bit of a lesson in how an Israeli government's constructed. And we'll talk to Danny about that after we get to the point where we are able to um, discuss how that works. So first and foremost, you have the Knesset elections, which took place. You had millions of Israelis go out to the polls, Israelis uh, who speak Hebrew, Russian, Arabic, those of an English background, those of a French background, everyone who's eligible to vote, some 67, 68% of the Israeli public turned out and voted on April 9th. Then you had the the, uh, next step, which was seeing which parties were able to cross through. 65 in the center-right block, 55 in the center-left Arab-Islamist block, which is uh, the two main parties running against each other, blue and white, led by Benny Gantz, a former Israeli chief of staff of the Israeli army, and Benjamin Netanyahu seeking his fifth term as prime minister. So these parties that got through their leadership has to go to the president of Israel, who's the head of state, not the head of government. He's the individual who represents Israeli concerns rather than the individual who leads the Israeli government, chooses the individual he thinks is most likely to form a Israeli um, government after you have the 120 Knesset seats selected. So what happens is, is that the president of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, went forward and nominated Benjamin Netanyahu for an almost record fifth term. He will probably go on to be the longest serving Israeli prime minister if he can constitute a government. But what Netanyahu has to do is to balance the interests of very, very disparate sects of Israeli society within his political bloc. So you have the religious, meaning ultra-Orthodox, national religious, which are um, religious uh, observant Jews who also partake in certain institutions of the state but have a more conservative right-wing view. He has secular uh, conservative voters and another party led by former defense minister Avigdor Lieberman he has to contend with. He has another member of his um, coalition from the last government who is the finance minister, a man named Moshe Kachlon, that he has to negotiate with. And the system in Israel gives the nominee for prime minister that the president chooses three weeks to put together a government and to put that government or the coalition of however many parties agree to serve with the prime minister to get through to a vote of the Knesset or Israel's parliament to be able to make that determination. Now, we are at the point where Netanyahu's time to construct a coalition government has expired. 
So just last week, he went back to the president and got a two-week extension, meaning that Netanyahu has now 14 days until May 29th to form his government. And on the background of all of these different political plays going on, I'm hoping that Danny, our guest, the former director of the Israeli government press office, the former president of Voice of Israel Radio, a former paratrooper and uh, Israeli diplomat in New York City, and I'm glad my colleague from the Middle East Forum who leads our Israel operations here can give us a little bit of context and how the coalition building is going. Danny, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. So I think it's ironic that give you an we're, we're, on a phone call, we're on a phone call here right now. You're somewhere probably about 15 minutes drive from me where we're often some yeah. 10,000 miles apart when we're usually uh, <laughs> doing, this, doing this broadcast. But I'm glad that you're back on the show. I'm glad you're in the next neighborhood over. Uh, we're going to see each other later today, so it'll be nice to sit down with you. But going beyond the coalition mathematics, going beyond the analysis of how Israeli governments are built – what are one or two issues that you think Netanyahu is wrestling with right now in his coalition negotiations to try to form the next Israeli government, which will give him an almost guarantee that he will be Israel's longest serving prime minister? Oh, I, I feel sorry for him right now. You know, all the problems he has to deal with, Iran, uh, Hamas, uh, United States or Europe or the UN at different times. This perhaps is, is the biggest problem because you have to sit around with a bunch of parties that actually lost the election to him. And he got to, he's been able in the 10 years that he's been prime minister, in the third election in this period that he's been prime minister, each time he's, re, he's gotten more seats for the Likud. So actually the public are giving him their stamp of approval. Um, and you would expect it to be very easy before, for him because he has the biggest party on the, on the right-wing conservative. So it, apparently it seems to be easy. But now he's, basically he's dealing with extortion right now with all these smaller parties because he, every, one, every single one of them has the ability, if they don't join, um, he doesn't have the majority necessary for uh, the 61 seat necessary for forming and, and getting the approval of the Knesset. So he's in a, in a bind at this point because every one of them are extorting him. The religious, because they have their reasons. Um, the uh, Baita UD party, because they all want to get a better seat. Now, even before, let's see, he resolves this problem with them. And they all get what they want, and they're all happy, and they're all in, in, in this coalition. Then he has an even bigger part problem. Then he has to deal with the members of his own party because you have at least 15 of them who believe that they are qualified to be ministers or, in the very least, deputy ministers, and they're all thinking about their futures. You know, they're all pretty young in their 50s and 40s, so they're at the peak of their political careers. They've been cho chosen in the Likud. The Likud is one of the few parties, I think one, only two parties actually have primaries that select. So they're actually selected by the members who vote for the Likud then in, in, the, in the general election. So they all feel that they deserve uh, a really respectable position. So once he gets over with the coalition partners, then he has to sit down, and there are going to be those disappointed. Now, you would expect they, they have a key by which they decide how many um, ministers there are or how many ministers each party gets. So in the past, it was saying for every four seats, you get one minister. Most of the smaller parties right now have five or six seats. 
So they are going to extort him to the point where they get two ministers. What it means is it leaves less places for the Likud members. He may face a revolt within his own party because there are quite a few of them who believe that not only do they deserve to be ministers, those who were ministers the last time expect to be upgraded now. If you were a minister of transportation, you want to be foreign minister. If you were a minister of some made-up, uh, and I'm, I'm literally saying made-up uh, 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 cabinet ministry, because they make it up to get these people satisfied and that they're ministers, and they get everything that comes along with that. So, uh, so these, these, here, these they're like expecting now to be issues, elevated I mean, to a bigger, terms, to a bigger uh, position. of policy and state, you know, I think that most prime ministers have to do the hard work of forming what is probably, in Churchillian terms, the best, worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So he, he's <laughs> got to make the, the, the least amount of people happy that is still the most amount of people that he can govern with. And there's some tricks where <laughs> you make someone a minister, and then there's a, a law in Israel called the, the, the Norwegian law, which if you become a minister, right. then the next person on the list also can become a minister, but then that allows more people to join the, the Knesset, the parliament. But in terms of things that are going on in internal uh, Israeli right-wing politicking, we have religion versus state. We have what is going to happen with the future of Israel's response to the Gazan issue. Can you go a little bit more in depth on the, the content or the substance of what the disagreements are between the parties and maybe give us an example or two? I'll tell you, all of these things that you mentioned can all be resolved. The issue between secular and religious demanding more observance of the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath. Uh, there's the, also the um, uh, law of, because you have, uh, in the military service here is mandatory, but uh, religious people, if they prove that they study in the yeshiva, they're exempt from it. But now for those, over the years, it's became that those who don't even study are also uh, they, don't, they don't declare that they're not studying. So there was a law passed that those who are not in the yeshiva or not studying Torah have to serve in the military. So they want to reduce that. That has to do with the control of the rabbis on their society. Just a sidebar and a very interesting thing here, when you're talking about the concern of Jews in the United States is assimilation, there's an element of assimilation happening in Israel as well, and that's why the religious um, leaders are so concerned. What is the assimilation happening here? They're becoming more and more, I won't say secular, but they're less Haredi, less uh, um, religious, and they lose control. So they, It's all about control. And then you have the element of what's going to happen with Hamas. Uh, some of the partners are asking him to show a tougher, and he has his own. I had the opportunity of, on, we have a radio show here in Israel, and we had the opportunity to interview him before the elections. And I asked him that question, uh, coming from the South myself, and I have, still have family there, people who naturally vote for him um, are asking, what is he going to do about it? And he was very honest in, in his answer. He said, I have a hard time and I want to do, make sure that I've used every option and before sending soldiers, and I know what the consequences can be for that. He says, I know how I go into it. I don't know how we get out of it, but I know that soldiers pay the price. He doesn't want to do that, which is, is very noble, and he was very honest, and I respected him for that answer. But these are the issues. So while he's concerned with that, others are concerned with impressing their voters, so they need to demand that he t takes tougher stand vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hamas without the, the, the other aspect of it, which we, he, he says there are things here that the public aren't aware of, 
It could be relations with the Arab countries. It could be a request from the United States. There are many things at play here that we don't know about that he obviously, as the prime minister, does know, and he has to juggle all of that. But as I said, every one of these things I expect to find a resolution to, his big problem will then be how does he pacify the egos of the members of his own party. And I'll tell you, it's the toughest job in the world being prime minister of Israel. So, so you, you, you have these uh, potential secrets or agreements or nadir in relations between Israel and the Arab world that maybe only the uh, prime minister and like select it. few group of advisors around him know about. But at the same time, last weekend, or two weekends ago, around 700 rockets fired in increasingly high volumes of salvos meant to defeat Israeli anti-missile systems. And the end result is millions of dollars being spent in defense costs. Uh, you have economic and structural damage, the disruption of the Israeli education system. But the most grave instance of danger to Israelis is this is really the first time in a 24-hour period that uh, three Jewish Israelis and, and one Muslim Arab Bedouin Israeli were killed as a result of direct rocket fire. So even though time in a few years. there, even though there is, um, yes, yeah, since, uh, operation protective edge, uh, about uh, right. five years ago now. Uh, but even That's though enough. there may be these issues, when will the Israeli common Joe, right? Your average Joe citizen say, Mr. Prime minister, enough is enough. There may be larger global, global calculations that you have to take into account. But your job is to defend me, and we have to do something about Hamas, and we have to do it now. And the reason I'm asking you this question is because I think this is the crux of what is the major uh, element that the prime minister and maybe the, the one last remaining uh, individual who has not completely agreed to compromise on his demands to enter the government, the former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman. I mean, this is ostensibly why the government collapsed back in November and we led to elections right. because there was the need for an ultimatum or a referendum on what happens vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. So I see two things happening here. On one side, your average Jewish Israeli citizen is asking, what's the prime minister going to do? And you have that group of people represented in the South or, or a select group of people who voted a certain way because Netanyahu said, yes, I'll find a solution. But then you have the tactics and the strategies which are being employed by the prime minister, allowing uh, Qatari bribery to basically buy quiet in Gaza. Those who say right. that it's good for there to be a, uh, a division in Palestinian unity between the West Bank and Gaza. Those who say we have bigger enemies that we have to worry about, you know, Allah, Iran and, and, and Syria and Hezbollah. But what do you think? is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of when the prime minister no longer has any maneuvering room and has to do something vis-a-vis -vis Gaza. Well, listen, obvi the obvious thing is if we, we've been, in many instances, we've been very lucky here. Yes, the, the uh, defense system has worked, the missile, the anti-missile missile system has been very uh, successful. 
Uh, and the public, it's also, it's amazing. The Israeli public is very steadfast. They, on, for example, in the Lebanon, second Lebanon war a few years ago, they said to the government, we'll take the missiles. They didn't, there wasn't a mass migration of Israelis. Israelis stayed put. The same thing is happening in the South. You don't have people leaving the South. They, they remain there. They understand not only the responsibility, but what it means to be an Israeli. And they do trust him as prime minister. So they're giving him tremendous leeway to, to do what he believes is necessary from trusting. But as I said, we've been also been very lucky. Very easily, any one of these missiles could have hit. There was, you know, there was an attempt on a bus that missed a bus and just killed a, a, a person in a car. Uh, another one hit a school. They, they've hit schools and kindergartens several times, but when school was out. So let's hope it doesn't happen. But if you have a major incident here, uh, then... Um, you obviously, the government can no longer, uh, and, and the paradigm changes at that point. You have to do what is necessary because the, the public will get, uh, it's not that they're going to lose patience. They'll demand the first responsibility of a government is to offer protection and defense. Also, it could be disrupting life in Israel to the point where it disrupts uh, our economy, meaning the, the more uh, populated centers of Israel, the economic centers of Israel. There's a debate here in Israel as well where people are not happy with it, that they say, oh, the lives in Tel Aviv are more valuable than the lives in the South. No, they're not. But the, the way Israel functions, it can still function when the center of the country is not under attack. So one of these two things would obviously be the, uh, uh, the, catalyzer, the catalyzer for uh, a, a different Israeli response. But there's also, and here there's a, a very smart man that you and I both happen to work for, uh, Professor Daniel Pipes wrote an, um, uh, another amazing article for the Jerusalem Post this week, and he, and he stresses the point of what we're dealing with is basically extortion. We're being extorted and, and, and you know, to a certain game of chicken that they're trying to test how far can they get away, and we're, paying along, we're playing along. Instead of changing that whole uh, equation and making it clear to them, look, you are the ones who are going to pay a price. You're the ones who are going to pay the consequences. This week there were also uh, two articles uh, here in Israel, uh, well, coming from, emanating from Israel, published in the Jewish press, talking about uh, that the, the Islamic Jihad is preparing a war this summer. That's it. They're going all out this summer. They're, they're giving it, making it uh, understand that they are taking off the gloves uh, in their own pers uh, heroics. But then there's a, a, another article that speaks about the fact that there's mass migration happening in Gaza. And this the world isn't paying attention to. They're not leaving because of Israel. They're leaving because of the Hamas, and they say because of the Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, that they say are both corrupt entities. They take advantage of their own citizens. They abuse their citizens. They make their lives miserable. They have no ability to live there. And they're leaving. Educated young Palestinians are going from Gaza escaping to Europe, getting out of there. And I'll tell you, from our perspective, they have to understand, we showed more responsibility, despite being criticized by all sorts of groups and, and these uh, social justice uh, warriors that, that uh, take the side of the Palestinians. The government of Israel showed more responsibility towards the lives of Palestinians than their own leaders did, because they were firing from civilian and, and Danny, Danny, from we're civilian areas. And on, on that note, we've got a hard stop here, but just as a final thought, We'll see what the strategy of the next government of Israel deals with, and we're going to talk about intra-Palestinian politics with our next guest. Thanks for joining us this morning, and after these messages, we'll be joined by Neri Zilber from the Washington Institute. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. 
The forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio, at the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. Our next guest, Neri Zilber, has a new piece out at the American Interest, looking at potential solutions to intractable problems which have plagued the Israeli-Palestinian peace process for the last 26 years. But before we get into this conversation with him, let's give a little bit of a background on Mr. Zilber. Neri is a journalist and analyst on Middle East politics and culture and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute. Prior to joining the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, he was a Tel Aviv-based fellow of the Institute of Current World Affairs from 2011 to 2013, and he has traveled extensively throughout Israel, the West Bank, and Jordan, reporting on regional issues. In addition, he also serves as a private sector consultant on political and economic risk issues, and has previously worked for the U.S. Library of Congress and the World Jewish Congress. Neri, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So you just wrote a new piece in the American Interest, which was giving a little bit of background on some of the subjects that have, I don't want to say plagued, but they have troubled the peace process in the past. And you give a great analysis and a great uh, summary of the evolution and devolution of Palestinian security forces from their first allotment in 1994, when Arafat and the PA, PLO becomes the PA, their involvement in the Second Intifada, their eventual uh, defeat at the hands of Hamas forces in Gaza after the disengagement and Hamas's takeover of the coastal strip, and the gradual reconstitution of those forces under three main priorities, serving for internal security, serving as a counterterrorism force, and serving as a force that closely coordinates with Israel. And, and you, you surmise that security cooperation, which has been the focus of U.S. and Israeli uh, building and capacity building of these forces in the West Bank, may act as a backbone for a future peace process. Can you give us a little bit more about how you see this relating to what is supposed to be released in a few weeks from now? Uh, Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Greenblatt, Friedman, their deal of the century, and how security is a vital component of any future peace process. 
Right. Well, you gave a great synopsis of, of the article, and I should mention that it was a uh, excerpt from a longer, a much longer study that I co-authored for the Washington Institute that came out last year. Uh, really, a, a deep dive into the history of the Palestinian Authority security forces, uh, which, as you mentioned, was really the first institution uh, created uh, out of the Oslo Accords. So when Arafat came back into into the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, he came back with. Uh, with some of his own uh, fighters and gunmen from the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, from the PLO, and that really formed the backbone of, of what became the PA security forces. Now, it, it's really a story of the rise, uh, fall, and now revival of this institution. Uh, what it did uh, in the 1990s during the day of the Oslo peace process, uh, and then really uh, into the carnage of the Second Intifada uh, that we all know uh, what happened there, suicide bombings in, in Israeli cities, and Israel uh, had to take action and went back into the West Bank, went back into Palestinian cities, and really dismantled uh, the PA security forces. But then coming out of the Second Intifada, uh, with, as you mentioned, U.S. support, uh, international support, the Europeans are also involved here on the ground, uh, reconstituting, uh, retraining, and ultimately rearming uh, the security force. Now, we should mention uh, it's a variety of forces that do a variety of things, but all in all, uh, and this is an important point, there are about 30,000 men under arms, whether policemen, gendarmerie, intelligence officers, but 30,000 men under arms in the West Bank today, working day in, day out, night in and night out, with their Israeli counterparts, with the IDF, with the Shin Bet, to uphold uh, security in the West Bank, to counter terror, primarily from from Hamas in the West Bank, and uh, coordinate with Israel uh, on various security issues. And this isn't, uh, going back to your, to your key question, this isn't the minor point. Uh, security, we learned this the hard way during the 1990s and during the Second Intifada. Security is the, is the baseline for any progress, whether economic progress, whether uh, you know, social progress between the two communities, between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and really, it's the baseline for, for any kind of peace process, if not an actual peace deal. Uh, you need quiet, you need stability, you need trust between the two parties, and really security is the key, the key question. And so the piece actually explains uh, what, what, how do we explain the, the relative quiet, the relative stability, really over the past 10 years in the West Bank. Uh, now, it's not, it's not as quiet as maybe uh, nicer parts of Philadelphia or uh, what we term you know, normal parts of, of the rest of the world, but relative for, for this part of the world and really relative to, to what we've seen uh, over the past 20, 25 years or so. It, it is actually surprising, remarkably surprising, how stable it has become. And the piece argues that a real, a real key component of that is really the work of the PA security forces. And the question really is, uh, is there a partner on the other side that we that we fail to acknowledge uh, that sometimes doesn't get the credit or the support that that it deserves? And this is something that the Trump peace team, I think, should should very much take into consideration. So I uh, I had the the privilege of working side by side with the United States Security Coordinator Keith Dayton, a uh, former artillery man from the U.S. Army. He gets position here in the U.S. consulate, in, or the former U.S. consulate now in Jerusalem back in 2008, 2009, and I end up working with a group called COGOT, the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territory, uh, in the territories, that being the Judea Samaria, the West Bank, and Gaza, 
and I become part of this team, which is city by city training between 700 and 1,000 Palestinian uh, membered brigades, which eventually constitutes the security force in every major Palestinian city center, from uh, Tolkarim, Jenin in the north, all the way down to Hebron, to Hebron and Jericho in the south. But I want to get beyond just the security apparatus for a second. I, I agree and I concur with your opinion that these are professionally trained uh, uh, now for over a decade uh, uh, individuals and officers that are consummate professionals in the way in which they work with their Israeli and American counter and even Jordanian counterparts. That's something that we have to mention. Jordan has a very uh, strong role in training these forces when they go over the Allenby Bridge and then come back. The Jordanian army has a large part in this too. But there's the point where security, yes, is important. And at this moment, the PA security forces are uh, uh, reliable. But they're only as reliable as their political leadership, in my opinion, allows them to have a certain amount of cooperation with Israel. And it's not so much that there's a security partner on the other side, but if the political process devolves or if there is a degeneration, just like there was in October of 2000, right at the waning end of the Clinton administration, and then we get to Camp David II, we get to the uh, Sharm el-Sheikh process, and it was these well-equipped predecessors, maybe not well-trained, well-disciplined, but well-equipped predecessors of the current PA security forces, the Tanzim, uh, which was the, the, the armed wing of the Fatah party before the evolution of the Al-Qaeda Martyrs Brigade, that was trained in a similar program by George Tennant back in the, uh, uh, the early 90s, right after Oslo, which was ostensibly supposed to target Hamas, that became the tip of this Palestinian spear fighting against the Israelis that they had only been sharing offices with a few weeks before the eruption of the Second Intifada. So as well as they're trained, what other elements have to be part of the political process to ensure that security cooperation would continue in a peace process? So that's a great point, right? So these, they're, they're security professionals, but they're only as uh, capable or, or professional as the, as the politicians allow them to be. Uh, you know, to their credit, and sometimes, as you mentioned, past president, uh, to their great discredit. Uh, now, the the key point I think is that the the PA security forces uh, operate under this larger political rubric, under this larger political framework. And the key question is whether they can maintain uh, their cohesiveness, their discipline, their effectiveness uh, absent a real political horizon for change. Uh, you know, in the article and also in the larger study for the Washington Institute, I, I interviewed uh, multiple Palestinian security officers and commanders. And, and the, key, the key point really that you hear again and again is that, you know, we're not doing this as a favor to Israel. We're doing this as a national interest, a national Palestinian interest. And the key objective moving forward really to their minds is, is statehood. And if you take that away from them, if you take away that, that goal and that uh, political horizon, then what are they really left with? Uh, that's point number one. And point number two, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, Arafat in October of 2000 uh, made a very fateful decision to to escalate violence against Israel, uh, including those very same security forces. Uh, I would just argue, though, that if you look at at the historical record, uh, and I go into it in the study and, and a little bit in, in the article, uh, Arafat was never as effective, uh, you know, against against Hamas, countering terror, 
stopping demonstrations from flowing out into highways and checkpoints and, and uh, clashing with Israeli soldiers. Uh, he never did any of the things that we've seen from the current Palestinian leadership over the past decade. And so that's that's obviously to, to their immense credit at the moment. Uh, and again, they're not doing this uh, oftentimes as a favor. It's also an interest that they greatly have to uphold stability. But it's something to keep in mind because, uh, you know, just as easily as Arafat uh, escalated and really undermined uh, everything that had been, that had been established uh, with the Oslo Accords and then moving forward, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the current Palestinian president, is actually doing uh, a lot to maintain uh, both security coordination and the larger framework. And that's something that, that should be taken into account and also not, not taken uh, as, a, as a given. No, no. And I, I, think, I think that the reticence of the Israelis who allowed the security training to take place after Oslo, without truly holding Arafat accountable, is something that they reinvested and they relooked at when the Shin Bet, when the Israeli civil military leadership, specifically in the West Bank, allowed this program to take place in 2009, 2010, said we have to have at least a political partner who will allow there to be a certain maintenance of, of quiet in the West Bank for this program to succeed. But that only goes so far as, like you said, the willingness of the Palestinian leadership to try to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel for their ultimate goal, which is to attain a Palestinian state side by side with some other state. And this, I think, gets to the crux of the issue. I mean, you, you, you label it in the title of your report, state with no army, army with no state. Uh, and if the Palestinians don't see that they're going to get a state, how can that devolve not just into a political crisis, but also the potential that the training that these guys have received over the past 10 years, or there are some officers who have served for 25 years. I mean, if you look at Jabril Rajoub, one of the biggest gripes that Hamas has with him is, is that he was responsible for the imprisoning of Hamas leadership for the brief period in 95 after that major suicide bombing campaign unleashed by Hamas and Islamic Jihad was taking place in Israeli city centers. They were getting to the Y River Accords. And you really had to get uh, the American pressure from Clinton on Arafat. It's maybe the only time that Arafat had a, had a, had a West Bank-wide operation against Hamas uh, originators of terrorism. But then, like you write in your uh, report and in your briefer article in the American Interest, that it was sort of a revolving door, right? They would put him in prison for a little bit and then eventually let them out to resume their terror activities. But the point I'm getting to here is, is that I think while security is important in any future arrangement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, until the potential for Palestinian rejectionism and uh, another leader that may replace Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, sees that he's got 20,000 well-armed security forces at his disposal and he may choose to use those security forces against Israel because he doesn't seem like he can get the state on his terms, you have to conquer rejectionism and Palestinian irredentist ideology before you can say, all right, these security forces are somebody we can put our bet on for the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think you touch on a key, uh, on, a, on a major point. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the basic wager for Israel in terms of a peace process is how much security do you risk uh, in return for any political upside that you may that you may receive in return, and you know you can debate the point, but 
a lot of people here in, in, in the States, you know, talk about the political upside being the, the future of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, right. And that's, you know, a whole other conversation. But but really, that wager is, is in place in terms of the bigger picture of, of the peace process and what we're what we're trying to attain. Uh, point number two is that, um, you know, while it's true that the Palestinians could obviously revert back to terror and violence, it's interesting to my mind that um, Hamoud Abbas has been in power now for much longer than Arafat was. That's an important point to to keep in mind. And he, he actually never escalated. He has not escalated. Uh, like we saw Arafat try to escalate multiple times in order to to kind of extract certain political benefits from from Israel and the American negotiators. So that just hasn't happened yet, uh, you know, to to his credit. Uh, but but really, he's eschewed violence, and he hasn't done many of the things that you know uh, even some of our us, uh, Palestine watchers uh, may have predicted that he that he could have done <laughs> uh, in terms of in terms of past and uh, in, in more recent political crises. And he hasn't done that, and that's. That's to his credit. Uh, and point number three, and this is looking forward, uh, you know, are the chances higher or lower that whoever succeeds Mahmoud Abbas will be will follow his policy directive, or are the chances higher or lower that he that he and it will be he uh, goes the more militant, more Arafat-like route? And my only point uh, in both kind of my public remarks and you know written written papers and and even in informal conversations, is the U.S. and Israel, and also the Palestinians themselves, uh, have to create a more conducive environment moving forward into a post-Abbas era where that person uh, can rise up and take power and, again, maintain stability and security for everybody, uh, but also feel comfortable in the existing framework uh, to move forward, as opposed to the alternative, which could, which could uh, you know, as you rightly point out, devolve into something a lot messier and a lot more violent. So, last question. You're, you're, let's say you're sitting in the room with Jared Kushner. You've got Trump's ear. What's the one thing that you tell him before he makes his peace process announcement that he has to convey to the Israelis and the Palestinians? Now, I, I just want to give a little bit of brief background in an article that your uh, colleague Robert Satloff wrote in the same publication. It may, it may have been in the National Interest, not the American Interest, where he was saying that the introduction of the peace plan, according to the way that he understands it, could be a disaster for the Israelis and the Palestinians. But what advice, what one piece of advice do you give the Kushner before he presents his plan? So I'm saying this not just because Rob Satloff was my boss and is a, is a close colleague, uh, but I have to agree with, with his point. Uh, don't, don't do it. Uh, don't release the plan, whatever <laughs> it happens. Uh, at the current moment, I can't imagine of a worse political moment, both here in Israel and also on the Palestinian side, to insert some kind of, uh, you know, peace diplomacy, uh, try to move forward with, with you know, anything tangible. Uh, to my mind, uh, Satloff's point is exactly right, that this could actually destabilize the status quo that, at least in terms of the West Bank, has been quite, quite good, quite stable uh, over the past decade. And I think, you know, in this thing that we call the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's often too easy to think of it as a this eternal and never-changing conflict, uh, but it actually changes quite a bit, and it goes through various permutations, uh, some some more positive than others. And I would argue that at least in terms of the West Bank and Israel and the relationship between the two the two leaderships uh, there, uh, it's actually been quite quite positive, and it should be built upon and not uh, not kind of gambled away uh, for this 
to this, uh, you know, to my mind, non-existent chance at, at cutting a final uh, ultimate deal of the century. So I, uh, I'm going to have to agree with you for different reasons. Uh, I, I don't know if you've been following the Middle East Forum's uh, work on what we call the Israel Victory Project. Our premise is, is that the Palestinians have to give up on what we consider to be their war goals, which is their irredentist, rejectionist, uh, uh, sort of uh, pathological denial of the Jewish right to exist, not just a religion here, but as a, you know, ethno uh, 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 cent not centric, but an ethno-described uh, state as one of the Jewish people, rather than just asking for a state for the Palestinian people, but also one of Jews uh, and Zionists at large. But I, I think we're in we're in violent agreement that there will be violence if there's an introduction of a peace process. Now we just maybe have different reasons for why we see that. Uh, Neri, any last thoughts before we get off? Uh, no, I would just I would just say on that point, violence isn't inevitable, uh, not even in the Middle East, and that uh, we've seen moments where violence could could erupt but hasn't. And I would chalk a lot of it up to uh, more positive and more rational Palestinian decision making uh, than we've seen ever in the past. And I think that should be uh, taken into account and not uh, not undercut or taken as an inevitability that it'll continue that way. From your lips to uh, Kushner's ears. So, uh, thank you very much. Neri Zilber of the Washington Institute. Final thoughts after this message. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that so while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. I'm Greg Roman with the final thoughts on the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. We heard two different kinds of opinions on the way in which Israelis are dealing with their own domestic political issues and how the future of Palestinian political processes vis-a-vis -vis the upcoming so-called deal of the century is going to be released. Had an interesting conversation with a colleague today here in Jerusalem where the points that Mr. Zilber had brought up about 
this not being the right time for introducing a peace process, and even looking at the way in which the Israeli political process is still trying to put together their own government, that it may not be the time to introduce a new negotiation process between Israel and what I think is the irredentist, rejectionist Palestinian partners. The history of the peace process tells us that from Oslo and the infamous White House law and handshake between Yitzhak Rabin, the former Israeli prime minister, Shimon Peres, the former Israeli foreign minister, President Bill Clinton, and the nefarious rejectionists on the Palestinian side, Yasser Arafat, that the only thing that came out of that now 25, 26-year-long process is the deaths and the maiming and the injuries of Israelis and Palestinians. Maybe the only positive, positive development was that of the Palestinians being able to experiment with their own self-autonomy, but the ability to go down the downward spiral, back into violence, and acting on the rejectionist inhibitions is that of what may come out of this peace process. So if I had to give my own piece of advice to Mr. Kushner and to President Trump, I would say, do not enter into a negotiation process now. Do not allow the mistakes of the past to present themselves again to be repeated in the future. And more so, I think we find ourselves in a situation where unless we give Israel full backing to decide what it has to do vis-a-vis the Palestinians to end their decades-long cycle of violence and rejection of the right for Jews to live in their ancestral homeland, another peace process will only lead to what our professor and the head of the Middle East Forum has called a war process. Thanks to Neri Zilber and Danny Seaman for joining us today. Delaney Janchek, our production assistant. Lisa Barbunas, our director of communications. And all of the Middle East Forum staff. Next week, I'll be back in Philadelphia. Have a great rest of the week.